Chapters thirty one to thirty three of On the Eve by Ivan Turgenev, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty one. Shubin had spoken truly. The unexpected news of Elena's marriage nearly killed Anna Vassilievna. She took to her bed. Nikolai Artemyevitch insisted on her not admitting her daughter to her presence. He seemed to be enjoying the opportunity of showing himself in the fullest sense the master of the house, with all the authority of the head of the family. He made an incessant uproar in the household, storming at the servants, and constantly saying, I will show you who I am, I will let you know, you wait a little. While he was in the house, Anna Vassilievna did not see Elena, and had to be content with Zoya, who waited on her very devotedly, but kept thinking to herself, Diesen insara fortzien, und wem? But directly Nikolai Artemyevitch went out, and that happened pretty often, Augustina Christianovna had come back in sober earnest, Elena went to her mother, and a long time her mother gazed at her in silence and in tears. This dumb reproach, more deeply than any other, cut Elena to the heart. At such moments she felt not remorse, but a deep, boundless pity akin to remorse. Mamma, dear mamma, she would repeat, kissing her hands, what was I to do? I'm not to blame. I loved him. I could not have acted differently. Throw the blame on fate for throwing me with a man whom papa doesn't like, and who is taking me away from you. Ah, Anna Vassilievna cut her short, don't remind me of that. When I think where you mean to go, my heart is ready to burst. Dear mamma, answered Elena, be comforted. At least it might have been worse. I might have died. But as it is, I don't expect to see you again. Either you will end your days there in a tent somewhere. Anna Vassilievna pictured Bulgaria as something after the nature of the Siberian swamps or I shall not survive the separation. Don't say that, mamma, dearest. We shall see each other again, please God. There are towns in Bulgaria just as there are here. Fine towns there indeed. There is war going on there now. Wherever you go, I suppose they are firing cannons off all the while. Are you meaning to set off soon? Soon, if only papa. He means to appeal to the authorities. He threatens to separate us. Anna Vassilievna turned her eyes heavenwards. No, Lenotchka, he will not do that. I would not myself have consented to this marriage. I would have died first, but what's done can't be undone, and I will not let my daughter be disgraced. So passed a few days. At last Anna Vassilievna plucked up her courage, and one evening she shut herself up alone with her husband in her room. The whole house was hushed to catch every sound. At first nothing was to be heard. Then Nikolai Artemyevich's voice began to tune up, then a quarrel broke out, shouts were raised, even groans were discerned. Already Shubin was plotting with the maids and Zoya to rush in to the rescue, but the uproar in the bedroom began by degrees to grow less, passed into quiet talk, and ceased. Only from time to time a faint sob was to be heard, and then those two were still. There was the jingling of keys, the creak of a bureau being unfastened. The door was opened, and Nikolai Artemyevich appeared. 
he looked surlily at every one who met him and went out to the club while anna vassilievna sent for elena embraced her warmly and with bitter tears flowing down her cheeks she said everything is settled he will not make a scandal and there is nothing now to hinder you from going from abandoning us you will let dmitri come to thank you elena begged her mother as soon as the latter had been restored a little wait a little my darling i cannot bear yet to see the man who has come between us we shall have time before you go before we go repeated elena mournfully nikolai artemyevitch had consented not to make a scandal but anna vassilievna did not tell her daughter what a price he had put on his consent she did not tell her that she had promised to pay all his debts and had given him a thousand roubles down on the spot moreover he had declared decisively to anna vassilievna that he had no wish to meet insarov whom he persisted in calling the montenegrin vagrant and when he got to the club he began quite without occasion talking of elena's marriage to his partner at cards a retired general of engineers you have heard he observed with a show of carelessness my daughter through the higher education has gone and married a student the general looked at him through his spectacles and muttered hm and asked him what stakes would he play for chapter thirty two the day of departure drew near november was already over the latest date for starting had come insarov had long ago made his preparations and was burning with anxiety to get out of moscow as soon as possible and the doctor was urging him on you need a warm climate he told him you will not get well here elena too was fretting with impatience she was worried by insarov's pallor and his emaciation she often looked with involuntary terror at his changed face her position in her parents house had become insupportable her mother mourned over her as over the dead while her father treated her with contemptuous coldness the approaching separation secretly pained him too but he regarded it as his duty the duty of an offended father to disguise his feelings his weakness anna vassilievna at last expressed a wish to see insarov he was taken up to her secretly by the back stairs after he had entered her room for a long time she could not speak to him she could not even bring herself to look at him he sat down near her chair and waited with quiet respectfulness for her first word elena sat down close and held her mother's hand in hers at last anna vassilievna raised her eyes saying god is your judge dmitri nikanorovitch she stopped short the reproaches died away on her lips why you are ill she cried elena your husband's ill i have been unwell anna vassilievna answered insarov and even now i am not quite strong yet but i hope my native air will make me perfectly well again ah bulgaria murmured anna vassilievna and she thought good god a bulgarian and dying a voice as hollow as a drum and eyes like saucers a perfect skeleton his coat hanging loose on his shoulders his face as yellow as a guinea and she's his wife she loves him it must be a bad dream but she checked herself at once dmitri nikanorovitch she said are you absolutely absolutely bound to go away 
absolutely anna vasilievna anna vasilievna looked at him ah dmitri nikanorovitch god grant you never have to go through what i am going through now but you will promise me to take care of her to love her you will not have to face poverty while i am living tears choked her voice she opened her arms and elena and insarov flung themselves into her embrace the fatal day had come at last it had been arranged that elena should say good-bye to her parents at home and should start on the journey from insarov's lodgings the departure was fixed for twelve o'clock about a quarter of an hour before the appointed time bersenyev arrived he had expected to find insarov's compatriots at his lodgings anxious to see him off but they had already gone before and with them the two mysterious persons known to the reader they had been witnesses at insarov's wedding the tailor met the kind gentleman with a bow he presumably to drown his grief but possibly to celebrate his delight at getting the furniture had been drinking heavily his wife soon led him away in the room everything was by this time ready a trunk tied up with cords stood on the floor bersenyev sank into thought many memories came rushing upon him twelve o'clock had long since struck and the driver had already brought round the horses but the young people still did not appear at last hurrying steps were heard on the stairs and elena came out escorted by insarov and shubin elena's eyes were red she had left her mother lying unconscious the parting had been terrible elena had not seen bersenya for more than a week he had been seldom of late at the sahovs she had not expected to meet him and crying you thank you she threw himself on his neck insarov too embraced him a painful silence followed what could these three say to one another what were they feeling in their hearts shubin realized the necessity of cutting short everything painful with light words our trio has come together again he began for the last time let us submit to the decrees of fate speak of the past with kindness and in god's name go forward to the new life in god's name on our distant way he began to hum and stopped short he felt suddenly ashamed and awkward it is a sin to sing where the dead are lying and at that instant in that room the past of which he had spoken was dying the past of the people met together in it it was dying to be born again in a new life doubtless still it was death come elena began insarov turning to his wife i think everything is done everything paid and everything packed there's nothing more except to take the box down he called his landlord the tailor came into the room together with his wife and daughter he listened slightly reeling to insarov's instructions dragged the box up onto his shoulders and ran quickly down the staircases tramping heavily with his boots now after the russian custom we must sit down observed insarov they all sat down bersenyev seated himself on the old sofa elena sat next him the landlady and her daughter squatted in the doorway all were silent all smiled constrainedly though no one knew why he was smiling each of them wanted to say something at parting and each except of course the landlady and her daughter they were simply rolling their eyes 
felt that at such moments it is only permissible to utter commonplaces, that any word of importance, of sense, or even of deep feeling would be somehow out of place, almost sincere. Insarov was the first to get up, and he began crossing himself. "'Farewell, our little room!' he cried. Then came kisses, the sounding but cold kisses of leave-taking, good wishes half expressed for the journey, promises to write, the last half-smothered words of farewell. Elena, all in tears, had already taken her seat in the sledge. Insarov had carefully wrapped her feet up in a rug. Shubin, Bersenev, the landlord, his wife, the little daughter with the inevitable kerchief on her head, the doorkeeper, a workman in striped bedgown, were all standing on the steps, when suddenly a splendid sledge, harnessed with spirited horses, flew into the courtyard, and from the sledge, shaking the snow off the collar of his cloak, leapt Nikolai Artemyevich. "'I am not too late, thank God!' he cried, running up to their sledge. "'Here, Elena, is our last parental benediction,' he said, bending down under the hood, and taking from his pocket a little holy image, sewn in a velvet bag, he put it round her neck. She began to sob and kiss his hands, and the coachman meantime pulled out of the forepart of the sledge a half-bottle of champagne and three glasses. "'Come,' said Nikolai Artemyevich, and his own tears were trickling onto the beaver collar of his cloak. "'We must drink to good journey, good wishes.' He began pouring out the champagne. His hands were shaking, the foam rose over the edge and fell onto the snow. He took one glass and gave the other two to Elena and Insarov, who by now was seated beside her. "'God give you,' began Nikolai Artemyevich, and he could not go on. He drank off the wine. They, too, drank off their glasses. "'Now you should drink, gentlemen,' he added, turning to Shubin and Bersenev. But at that instant the driver started the horses. Nikolai Artemyevich ran beside the sledge. "'Mind and write to us,' he said, in a broken voice. Elena put out her head, saying, "'Good-bye, papa, Andrei Petrovitch, Pavel Yakovlitch, good-bye all, good-bye Russia,' and dropped back in her place. The driver flourished his whip and gave a whistle. The sledge, its runners crunching on the snow, turned out of the gates to the right and disappeared. End of chapter 32 Chapter 33 It was a bright April day. On the broad lagoon which separates Venice from the narrow strip of accumulated sea-sand called the Lido, a gondola was gliding, swaying rhythmically at every push made by the gondolier as he leaned on the big pole. Under its low awning, on soft leather cushions, were sitting Elena and Insarov. Elena's features had not changed much since the day of her departure from Moscow, but their expression was different. It was more thoughtful and more severe, and her eyes had a bolder look. Her whole figure had grown finer and more mature, and the hair seemed to lie in greater thickness and luxuriance along her white brow and her fresh cheeks. Only about her lips, when she was not smiling, a scarcely perceptible line showed the presence of a hidden, constant anxiety. In Insarov's face, on the contrary, the expression had remained the same, but his features had undergone a cruel change. 
He had grown thin, old, pale, and bent. He was constantly coughing a short dry cough, and his sunken eyes shone with a strange brilliance. On the way from Russia, Insarov had lain ill for almost two months at Vienna, and only at the end of March had he been able to come with his wife to Venice. From there he was hoping to make his way through Zara to Serbia to Bulgaria. The other roads were closed. The war was now at its height about the Danube. England and France had declared war on Russia. All the Slavonic countries were roused and were preparing for an uprising. The gondola put into the inner shore of the Lido. Elena and Insarov walked along the narrow, sandy road, planted with sickly trees. Every year they plant them, and every year they die, to the outer shore of the Lido, to the sea. They walked along the beach. The Adriatic rolled its muddy blue waves before them. They raced into the shore, foaming and hissing, and drew back again, leaving fine shells and fragments of seaweed on the beach. "'What a desolate place!' observed Elena. "'I'm afraid it's too cold for you here, but I guess why you wanted to come here.' cold rejoined insarov with a rapid and bitter smile i shall be a fine soldier if i'm to be afraid of the cold i came here i will tell you why i look across that sea and i feel as though here i am nearer my country it is there you know he added stretching out his hand to the east the wind blows from there will not this wind bring the ship you are expecting said elena see there is a white sail. Is that not it? Insarov gazed seaward into the distance to where Elena was pointing. Rendich promised to arrange everything for us within a week, he said. We can rely on him, I think. Did you hear, Elena, he added, with sudden animation? They say the poor Dalmatian fishermen have sacrificed their dredging weights, you know, the leads they weigh their nets with for letting them down to the bottom, to make bullets. They have no money, they only just live by fishing, but they have joyfully given up their last property, and now are starving. What a nation! Aufgepasst! shouted a haughty voice behind them. The heavy thud of horses' hoofs was heard, and an Austrian officer in a short grey tunic and a green cap galloped past them. They had scarcely time to get out of the way. Insarov looked darkly after him. He was not to blame, said Elena. You know they have no other place where they can ride. He was not to blame, answered Insarov, but he made my blood boil with his shout, his moustaches, his cap, his whole appearance. Let us go back. Yes, let us go back, Dmitri. It's really cold here. You did not take care of yourself after your Moscow illness, and you had to pay for that at Vienna. Now you must be more cautious. Insarov did not answer, but the same bitter smile passed over his lips. "'If you like,' Elena went on, "'we will go along to the Canal Grande. We have not seen Venice properly, you know, all the while we have been here. And in the evening we are going to the theatre. I have two tickets for the stalls. They say there's a new opera being given. If you like, we will give up today to one another.' We will forget politics and war and everything. We will forget everything but that we are alive, breathing, thinking together, that we are one for ever. Would you like that? 
If you would like it, Elena, answered Insarov, it follows that I should like it too. I knew that, observed Elena with a smile. Come, let's go. They went back to the gondola, took their seats, told the gondolier to take them without hurry along the Canal Grande. No one who has not seen Venice in April knows all the unutterable fascinations of that magic town. The softness and mildness of spring harmonize with Venice, just as the glaring sun of summer suits the magnificence of Genoa, and as the gold and purple of autumn suits the grand antiquity of Rome. The beauty of Venice, like the spring, touches the soul and moves it to desire. It frets and tortures the inexperienced heart like the promise of a coming bliss, mysterious but not elusive. Everything in it is bright, and everything is wrapped in a drowsy, tangible mist, as it were, of the hush of love. Everything in it is so silent, and everything in it is kindly. Everything in it is feminine, from its name upwards. It has well been given the name of the fair city. Its masses of palaces and churches stand out light and wonderful, like the graceful dream of a young god. There is something magical, something strange and bewitching, in the greenish-gray light and silken shimmer of the silent water of the canals, in the noiseless gliding of the gondolas, in the absence of the coarse din of a town, the coarse rattling and crashing and uproar. Venice is dead, Venice is deserted, her citizens will tell you, but perhaps this last charm, the charm of decay, was not vouchsafed her in the very heyday of the flower and majesty of her beauty. He who has not seen her knows her not. Neither Canaletto nor Guardi, to say nothing of later painters, has been able to convey the silvery tenderness of the atmosphere, the horizon so close yet so elusive, the divine harmony of exquisite lines and melting colours. One who has outlived his life, who has been crushed by it, should not visit Venice. She will be cruel to him as the memory of unfulfilled dreams of early days. But sweet to one whose strength is at its full, who is conscious of happiness, let him bring his bliss under her enchanted skies, and however bright it may be, Venice will make it more golden with her unfading splendour. The gondola in which Insarov and Elena were sitting, past Riva degli Schiavoni, the Palace of the Doges, and the Piazzetta, and entered the Grand Canal. On both sides stretched the marble palaces. They seemed to float softly by, scarcely letting the eye seize or absorb their beauty. Elena felt herself deeply happy. In the perfect blue of her heavens there was only one dark cloud, and it was in the far distance. Insarov was much better that day. They glided as far as the acute angle of the Rialto, and turned back. Elena was afraid of the chill of the churches for Insarov, but she remembered the Academy delle Belle Arti, and told the gondolier to go towards it. They quickly walked through all the rooms of that little museum. Being neither connoisseurs nor dilettantes, they did not stop before every picture. They put no constraint on themselves. A spirit of light-hearted gaiety came over them. Everything seemed suddenly very entertaining. Children know this feeling well. 
To the great scandal of three English visitors, Elena laughed till she cried over the St. Mark of Tintoretto, skipping down from the sky like a frog into the water to deliver the tortured slave. Insarov, in his turn, fell into raptures over the back and legs of the sturdy man in the green cloak, who stands in the foreground of Titian's ascension, and holds his arms outstretched after the Madonna. But the Madonna, a splendid, powerful woman, calmly and majestically making her way towards the bosom of God the Father, impressed both Insarov and Elena. They liked, too, the austere and reverent painting of the elder Cima di Conegliano. As they were leaving the academy, they took another look at the Englishmen behind them, with their long, rabbit-like teeth and drooping whiskers, and laughed. They glanced at their gondolier with his abbreviated jacket and short breeches, and laughed. They caught sight of a woman selling old clothes, with a knob of grey hair on the very top of her head, and laughed more than ever. They looked into one another's face, and went off into peals of laughter. And directly they had sat down in the gondola, they clasped each other's hands in a close, close grip. They reached their hotel, ran into their room, and ordered dinner to be brought in. Their gaiety did not desert them at dinner. They pressed each other to eat, drank to the health of their friends in Moscow, clapped their hands at the waiter for a delicious dish of fish, and kept asking him for live frutti di mare. The waiter shrugged his shoulders and scraped with his feet, but when he had left them he shook his head, and once even muttered with a sigh, Poveretti! Poor things! After dinner they set off for the theatre. They were giving an opera of Verdi's, which, though, honestly speaking, rather vulgar, has already succeeded in making the round of all the European theatres, an opera well known among Russians, La Traviata. The season in Venice was over, and none of the singers rose above the level of mediocrity. Everyone shouted to the best of their abilities. The part of Violetta was performed by an artist of no renown, and judging by the cool reception given her by the public, not a favourite, but she was not destitute of talent. She was a young and not very pretty black-eyed girl, with an unequal and already overstrained voice. Her dress was ill-chosen and naively gaudy. Her hair was hidden in a red net. Her dress of faded blue satin was too tight for her, and thick Swedish gloves reached up to her sharp elbows. Indeed, how could she, the daughter of some Bergamese shepherd, know how Parisian dames aux camellia dress? And she did not understand how to move on the stage, but there was much truth and artless simplicity in her acting, and she sang with that passion of expression and rhythm which is only vouchsafed to Italians. Elena and Insarov were sitting alone together in a dark box close to the stage. The mirthful mood which had come upon them in the Academy delle Belle Arti had not yet passed off. When the father of the unhappy young man who had fallen into the snares of the enchantress came onto the stage in a yellow frock-coat and a dishevelled white wig, opened his mouth awry, and losing his presence of mind before he had begun, only brought out a faint bass tremolo, they almost burst into laughter. But Violetta's acting impressed them. "'They hardly clap that poor girl at all,' said Elena, 
but I like her a thousand times better than some conceited second-rate celebrity who would grimace and attitudinize all the while for effect. This girl seems as though it were all in earnest. Look, she pays no attention to the public." Insarov bent over the edge of the box and looked attentively at Violetta. Yes, he commented, she is in earnest. She's on the brink of the grave herself. Elena was mute. The third act began. The curtain rose. Elena shuddered at the sight of the bed, the drawn curtains, the glass of medicine, the shaded lamps. She recalled the near past. What of the future, what of the present, flashed across her mind. As though in response to her thought, the artist's mimic cough on the stage was answered in the box by the hoarse, terribly real cough of Insarov. Elena stole a glance at him and at once gave her features a calm and untroubled expression. Insarov understood her, and he began himself to smile, and softly to hum the tune of the song. But he was soon quiet. Violetta's acting became steadily better and freer. She had thrown aside everything subsidiary, everything superfluous, and found herself, a rare, a lofty delight for an artist. She had suddenly crossed a limit which it is impossible to define, beyond which is the abiding place of beauty. The audience was thrilled and astonished. The plain girl with the broken voice began to get a hold on it, to master it. And the singer's voice even did not sound broken now. It had gained mellowness and strength. Alfredo made his entrance. Violetta's cry of happiness almost raised that storm in the audience known as fanatismo, beside which all the applause of our northern audiences is nothing. A brief interval passed, and again the audience were in transports. The duet began, the best thing in the opera, in which the composer has succeeded in expressing all the pathos of the senseless waste of youth, the final struggle of despairing, helpless love. Caught up and carried along by the general sympathy, with tears of artistic delight and real suffering in her eyes, the singer let herself be borne along on the wave of passion within her. Her face was transfigured, and in the presence of the threatening signs of fast-approaching death, the words, Lasciami vivere, morir si giovane, let me live, to die so young, burst from her in such a tempest of prayer rising to heaven, that the whole theatre shook with frenzied applause and shouts of delight. Elena felt cold all over. Softly her hand sought Insarov's, found it, and clasped it tightly. He responded to its pressure, but she did not look at him, nor he at her. Very different was the clasp of hands with which they had greeted each other in the gondola a few hours before. Again they glided along the Canal Grande towards their hotel. Night had set in now, a clear, soft night. The same palaces met them, but they seemed different. Those that were lighted up by the moon shone with pale gold, and in this pale light all the tales of ornaments and lines of windows and balconies seemed lost. They stood out more clearly in the buildings that were wrapped in a light veil of unbroken shadow. The gondolas, with their little red lamps, seemed to flit past more noiselessly and swiftly than ever. Their steel beaks flashed mysteriously. Mysteriously their oars rose and fell over the ripples, stirred by little silvery fish. 
Here and there was heard the brief, subdued call of a gondolier. They never sing now. Scarcely another sound was to be heard. The hotel, where Insarov and Elena were staying, was on the riva degli Schiavoni. Before they reached it they left the gondola, and walked several times round the square of St. Mark, under the arches, where numbers of holiday-makers were gathered before the tiny cafés. There is a special sweetness in wandering alone with one you love, in a strange city among strangers. Everything seems beautiful and full of meaning. You feel peace and goodwill to all men. You wish all the same happiness that fills your heart. But Elena could not now give herself up without a care to the sense of her happiness. Her heart could not regain its calm after the emotions that had so lately shaken it. And Insarov, as he walked by the palace of the doges, pointed without speaking to the mouths of the Austrian cannons, peeping out from the lower arches, and pulled his hat down over his eyes. By now he felt tired, and with a last glance at the church of St. Mark, at its cupola, where on the bluish lead bright patches of phosphorescent light shone in the rays of the moon, they turned slowly homewards. Their little room looked out onto the lagoon, which stretches from the riva degli Schiavoni to the Giudecca. Almost facing their hotel rose the slender tower of St. George. High against the sky on the right shone the golden ball of the customs house, and decked like a bride stood the loveliest of the churches, the Redentore of Palladio. On the left were the black masts and rigging of ships, the funnels of steamers, a half-furled sail hung in one place like a great wing, and the flag scarcely stirred. Insarov sat down at the window, but Elena did not let him admire the review for long. He seemed suddenly feverish, he was overcome by consuming weakness. She put him to bed, and waiting till he had fallen asleep, she returned to the window. Oh, how still and kindly was the night! What dove-like softness breathed in the deep blue air! Every suffering, every sorrow surely must be soothed to slumber, under that clear sky, under that pure holy light. O oh God, thought Elena, why must there be death? Why is there separation and disease and tears? Or else, why this beauty, this sweet feeling of hope, the soothing sense of an abiding refuge, an unchanging support, an everlasting protection. What is the meaning of this smiling, blessing sky, this happy sleeping earth? Can it be that all that is only in us, and that outside us is eternal cold and silence? Can it be that we are alone, alone, and there on all sides, in all those unattainable depths and abysses, nothing is akin to us? all all is strange and apart from us why then have we this desire for this delight in prayer morirsi giovane was echoing in her heart is it impossible then to propitiate to avert to save o oh god is it impossible to believe in miracle she dropped her head on her clasped hands enough she whispered indeed enough i have been happy not for moments only not for hours, not for whole days even, but for whole weeks together. And what right had I to happiness? She felt terror at the thought of her happiness. What if that cannot be, she thought? What if it is not granted for nothing? Why, it has been heaven, and we are mortals, poor sinful mortals. 
morir si giovane oh dark omen away it's not only for me his life is needed but what if it is a punishment she thought again what if we must now pay the penalty of our guilt in full my conscience was silent it is silent now but is that a proof of innocence oh god can we be so guilty canst thou who hast created this night this sky wish to punish us for having loved each other if it be so if he has sinned if i have sinned she added with involuntary force grant that he o oh god grant that we both may die at least a noble glorious death there on the plains of his country not here in this dark room and the grief of my poor lonely mother she asked herself and was bewildered and could find no answer to her question elena did not know that every man's happiness is built on the unhappiness of another that even his advantage his comfort like a statue needs a pedestal the disadvantage the discomfort of others renditch muttered insarov in his sleep elena went up to him on tiptoe bent over him and wiped the perspiration from his face he tossed a little on his pillow and was still again she went back again to the window and again her thoughts took possession of her she began to argue with herself to assure herself that there was no reason to be afraid she even began to feel ashamed of her weakness is there any danger isn't he better she murmured why if we had not been to the theatre to-day all this would never have entered my head at that instant she saw high above the water a white seagull some fisherman had scared it it seemed for it flew noiselessly with uncertain course as though seeking a spot where it could alight come if it flies here thought elena it will be a good omen the seagull flew round in a circle folded its wings and as though it had been shot dropped with a plaintive cry in the distance behind a dark ship elena shuddered then she was ashamed of having shuddered and without undressing she lay down on the bed beside insarov who was breathing quickly and heavily end of chapter thirty three